this is Castle One. Race officer speaking. That's a good one, Jimmy. Still gaining on the Welcome back, podcast listeners, and many, many thanks for joining us. It's great to have you along. As many of you have noticed, we've had a, a little bit of a break. It wasn't planned, but August was a busy month for us, as some of you may know. But we're back with a bang. We have a real treat in store this month. A professional sailor you, our listeners, have requested to hear from, possibly more than any other. So that's all coming up shortly. Before that, a quick catch-up. No podcast last month, partly because the pair of us were in Tokyo for the Olympics, watching all the sailing unfold at the sailing venue in Enoshima. It was a regatta full of drama, and I hope some of you managed to watch it. A massive congratulations to all the medal winners. There were a few former podcast guests up there on the podium, and I hope we'll be hearing from a few more over the coming months. But also, we'd both like to say a massive heartfelt thank you to the people of Enoshima, to the volunteers and staff at the venue. It wasn't a normal Olympic Games by any stretch, but the people of Japan were wonderful. So many, many thanks for your hospitality and your patience. Straight back from Tokyo, I was then immediately into preparation for the Fastnet race. I arrived home just 36 hours before the start gun, so I had a bit on, racing double-handed with the impressively talented Henry Bombi. For those that may have missed this, we've been racing the double-handed circuit this summer, and I've really loved it. Tokyo didn't give us the best run into the Fastnet, and we had a slight wobble on the start line. But after that, we found our groove, and what a race we had. I don't want to give too much away because, as I've mentioned before, our Fastnet campaign has been documented by the talented Tim at Vertigo Films. And our full Fastnet adventure is online for all to see. Head over to Shirley Robertson's Sailing Podcast on YouTube. And if you haven't done so already, check it out. If you've some time on your hands, you can watch the whole box set, four films about our offshore season, the finale being our Fastnet adventure. Check it out. It's good fun. A massive thanks to all of you who have contributed and left messages on buymeacoffee.com. It's really appreciated. As we've said before, it takes a lot of time to put this together. Tim and I put a lot of effort into the pause and we'd like to try and stay ad-free. So a big fat thank you to all of you who have supported us. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so, then it's really easy to find buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. It's super quick, super easy and greatly appreciated. Right, on to our guest this month. He's a man that's been on three America's Cup winning teams. He boasts an Olympic silver medal and won his first world title at just 18 years of age. But accolades and titles are only half of it. There's a lot more to this month's guest than world titles although of those, he has many. When you think of fast multi-hulls, generally you think of the French offshore scene. You think, of course, of Mr. Multi-Hull, my good friend Luc Perron, his brother Bruno, Frank Camas, and latterly Francois Gabar. 
but when it comes to making multi-hulls go fast, Australian sailor Glenn Ashby is the master. He has 10 A-Class World titles, and A-Class Worlds this century without Ashby on the podium is a significant rarity. All the while, he was also winning Formula 18 and Tornado World Championships, and getting a successful cup career off the ground. Not bad for a lad that grew up over 100 miles from the sea in the middle of Victoria, Australia. In the second part of the pod, we discuss how multi-hulls in the America's Cup was a dream come true for Glenn, and how being part of the defeat for Team New Zealand in San Francisco was a catalyst for the team's subsequent successes that Glenn has been such an integral part of. But before all that, we discuss Glenn's early sailing career, the Olympic Games, making boats go fast, and a whole lot more. We recorded this edition remotely. Glenn was just back at home after some time relaxing post the cup win earlier this year. I hope you enjoy the time I spent with Glenn Ashby. I started sailing when I was sort of six and a half, seven years old, and I, I didn't actually sail on the sea until I was 10. Sail making it was for me, and um, I've been a sail maker ever since, and, and proud of it. Here I am in Europe, sleeping under my boat cover, with not two cents to rub together. Glenn Ashby, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're requested a lot by our listeners, so it's so good to have you. A massive thanks for joining us from Melbourne. Glenn, the last time I saw you was the morning after the Cup Victory celebration, and you were wheeling the biggest, meanest looking, badass motorbike out of Team New Zealand base with your head and maybe your heart already into the next adventure. I mean, tell us what you've been up to since that win in Auckland. Yeah, look, it's, um, you know, it's been, it sort of feels funny, like you you, you finish, um, you know, you finish an event like that. And um, the reason I had my bike in the base was um, that it was probably not, it was probably going to end up in the water, I think, uh, if I didn't go and wheel it inside that night, someone would have wheeled it over the edge um, of the dock. But um yeah, look, um, you know, as far as since the few months since then, it's just been, you know, really, really nice to, I guess, you know, reflect, um, spent t- spending some time, you know, both in New Zealand and back in Australia, catching up with, with friends and family. Um, you know, you, you end up sort of, you know, quite head down, um, bum up, I suppose, doing your, doing what you need to do through those, those sort of busy last few months. And, um, it is really, really nice to sort of drop your shoulders and, um, you know, catch up with those that have supported you and, and been part of the journey. And, um, you know, certainly in New Zealand, we had some great little adventures, you know, some, some bike riding and some great walks with friends. And then coming back to Australia a couple of months later after the cup, you know, we've had some really nice sort of catch ups, I guess, with family that we hadn't really been able to see for about a year and a half, actually. So even though you were only three and a half hours flight away from uh, from Australia. It was uh, with with COVID. It was just simply not possible to, to go home. So um, to catch up with the, the, you know your, your family and your, your parents and the kids for their grandparents, it's um it's been really lovely. So yeah, just sort of getting your feet back on the ground, taking a few deep breaths, and um, you know contemplating what the future what the future may hold. I can imagine it's also a bit weird post cup. I mean, you spend long days together with your team. I mean, with such purpose 
so much focus and then it's over and you'll go off and do your own thing. I mean, how's it been for you? Do you miss them or are you have you been happy just tinkering in that legendary shed of yours? <laughs> um, no, that's always always good. Every man needs a shed. Um, <laughs> But look, it, it, I really miss the guys. You know, I miss the I miss the program. It, it's a you know you pretty much go cold turkey. Uh, you know, the day after the cup finishes and you don't know when it's going to finish. Uh, the day after it finishes, it's like bang, and it just it's like a you know a, cho- a guillotine's come down and just chopped everything off. It's the you know it's the end. It signals the end, and it's um you know it's quite a full on abrupt stop and. Yeah, it's um, it's been quite a quite a you know a change, and and coming back to Australia, um, yeah, you, you, you've never really felt so far away from from the team and and your mates and and from New Zealand, even though we're just across the ditch, um, you know, you you, f- you feel a world away. So it, it is strange, and you know, the girls miss their friends over there, and you know, their their schoolmates and 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 all all our friends and contacts um, in New Zealand. You know, we 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 miss everybody and. But at the same time, it is nice to come back and see your family, which, you know, you haven't seen for a while. So it's you sort of feel a bit torn, to be honest. I'm going to ask you quickly about that big bike. I mean, I'm surprised that you're allowed to ride that thing, either by your wife, Mel, or the people that pay your wages. (laughs) Although I know there's a bit of a big bike culture at Team New Zealand. I filmed at the racetrack with your boss, Grant Dalton, of course. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, look, I'm I'm probably pretty fortunate to uh, you know have adults um, you know also interested in riding bikes as well. Um, <laughs> we've done quite a bit of riding together over the years, and um, you know when I first joined Team New Zealand, we we did some great rides together. And um, you know I, I certainly understand his passion, you know, for for bikes and the sport of motorcycling. And I think he you know understands my you know growing up in the bush and my enthusiasm for for, for two wheeled machines as well. So. Um, you know, you definitely take a, a pretty, you know, um, careful approach that last sort of few months before the America's Cup itself. It's, um, you give yourself a pretty much a self, a self ban on, on, um, you know, doing that sort of activity, uh, to a, to a sort of a, you know, the level that you would normally do. And, um, but yeah, I just basically, um, you know, lo- love my bikes and it's, um, really, really nice to be able to spend some time. Uh, getting back uh, on the bike and um, not having to worry about, you know, sort of what jib to put up, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll chat a bit about bikes later and also the cup, Glenn. But first, let's wind the clock back. You're a young boy from Bendigo, a gold mining town two hours from Melbourne. What was that like? Describe life growing up with the Ashbys in the 80s. Um, yeah, look, it, it, you know, I feel really, um, really fortunate, I guess, to, to have grown up in, in Bendigo, um, in central Victoria, um, far, far away from the, the sea, um, you know, um, uh, you know, nearly two, two hour, two and a half hours drive from, from Melbourne and Port Phillip Bay. Um, but growing up as a kid, you know, in the eighties, it, it, you know, I guess, you know, with mum and dad's enthusiasm for, for sailing and for, for, for motorbiking and, and camping and, and sort of adventuring, I guess, when we were kids. Um, yeah, I just have some super fond memories of, um, you know, um, yeah, mucking about with, with boats out at the local lake and, um, and riding bikes and, and sort of kicking the football around. And it's, um, you know, Bendigo in central Victoria, it gets extremely hot and dry and dusty in the summer. 
um, and um, the local lake that, that we grow up on it was a, is a reservoir and um, it would basically dry out over the summer months until it basically became you know, almost impossible to, to go sailing. There'd be dead trees sort of poking up out of the water and you'd be sort of dodging those and occasionally you'd be running into them that were under the water and um, you know, you'd, you'd wait for winter to come around and everything would green up and the dust would disappear and everything would get sort of muddy and, um, you know, clean and tidy and uh, as far as the, the flora and fauna went. And you'd be riding your motorbike and you, you'd sort of put the boat away for a few months and you'd get out on your, your BMX and, and your motorbikes and, and play soccer and you'd watch the lake fill back up again. It was sort of, you know, it had a tide, but it was a, a yearly cycle, not a daily cycle. <laughs> So, um, you know, you'd, you'd go back out to the lake a couple of months later and the water would literally be hundreds of metres higher than it was when you left. And, um, yeah, quite a few times the, uh, if the, if it rained a lot, the, um, and they didn't get the jetty hooked up to the tractor quick enough, um, the whole jetty would disappear under the water and there'd be a big, uh, working bee to try and drag the jetty out. So they didn't lose it. So, um, yeah, some, some real good fun and games. And I think, um, you know, those early memories of, um, you know, growing up, in Bendigo, certainly, um, you know, you, you remember those those times fondly and sailing around in, you know, in a sort of a muddy puddle. Um, but, you know, absolutely getting the best out of your boat and the, and the conditions. And I think the shiftiness um, and the puffiness and sort of the, the, you know, diversity of that sort of location, I think, if you could sail well on the lake, you know, when you got to some other venues as you got older, you know, you, you, you didn't get frustrated by shifty winds and random places you, you actually were like oh no this is pretty normal and i know what to do here and you know success came sometimes in those shifty european lake venues when you first went across there i asked darren bundock uh, who you sailed with at the games a, a few questions and, and one of the points he made was that lake epilogue was a was basically a puddle that when he went to see it was completely was completely dry i mean none of the privileges of, of growing up you know by the sea no, look, it was, um, you know, I didn't sail on the sea. Um, I started sailing when I was sort of, you know, six and a half, seven years old, and I, I didn't actually sail on the sea um, until I was 10. So the first sort of three and a half years of my sailing were done on the lake. And, um, yeah, it was a bit of an eye-opener going down to the, to, the, to the sea and the ocean, you know, for the first time sailing. I was, you know, it was pretty daunting actually sailing in the big waves and really different to the lake. And, um, yeah, it was quite quite a quite an experience that I, I still remember it to this day that, that first time sailing on the ocean and um yeah I, I think you know Bendigo um you know there was some really really uh good lessons I think learned from from even just living in a country town and and being able to you know make do with what you had you know we didn't have any fancy gear it was um I didn't have a new sail um until I was uh, about 15 or 16 years old so I dealt with just old second-hand gear right the way through until I was well into my, my teenage years and I don't know if that was a reason for becoming a sailmaker so I could make a new sail or not but um, <laughs> it was um, you know you just got used to adjusting things and recutting and remaking and refairing and repainting and um, just working on old stuff to try and get the best out of it and I think those lessons are um, something that I think still reign true with what I do now. What kind of a boy was the young Glenn Ashby? Was he always looking out the window at school, dreaming of going fast? <laughs> uh, yep, I think I probably was, uh, to be fair. Um, when I really enjoyed, I enjoyed school. I was probably a little bit, you know, a little bit naughty at times, but got along really well, um, you know, with, I think, the, the teachers um, globally. And, and, you know, was always 
inquisitive and always was asking a lot of questions. And my grandpa actually called me, you know, little what and why um, when I was growing up. And uh, I probably exactly as I'm now, you know, always asking questions and just wanting to to learn more and and and, and understand things better. And I think at school for me, um, yeah, absolutely sort of wanted to basically just get out of school so I could go and jump on the bike or, uh, or go out to the lake. So, um, you know, it was, um, we had a great group of, uh, you know, kids that I grew up with that, um, you know, did a lot of, you know, sort of BMX riding and mountain biking and our back gate opened up into, into the state forest or into the bush. So you come home and you chuck your school bag off and chuck a pair of shorts on and, um, away you go into the bush for hours on the bike. So until you'd sort of hear mum, you know, yell out or, uh, you knew that it was getting dark and you got hungry, you'd, you'd go home for dinner and, um, yeah, that was sort of pretty much, uh, pretty much the, the, the Bendigo lifestyle at that particular time growing up at school. It sounds good. Yeah. I mean, as a boy, you were smaller than your peers, but that didn't stop you. You won the under 11 Victoria Championships. I'm guessing on the sea. Uh, I mean, how big a difference did that victory make to Glenn Ashby? What do you remember of it? <laughs> Oh, it's a great question, Shirley. Like it's, and you've obviously done your homework well. <laughs> um, that was actually the first time I, I did sail on the, on the sea, that, that Victorian championships. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that regatta really probably was the, the, one of the defining moments, I guess, for me is, you know, in, in the sport, I guess, at, at that particular time. And I didn't, wouldn't realize that probably till years went past, but one of the, the, I think it was the, um, the second day of the three day regatta was, um, a really, really windy day. And, um, yeah, basically out of the sort of, you know, 20 or 30 boats that were there, I think only, only seven finished, uh, you know, that on the, the, the really the only race of that windy day. And I was, um, in seventh position, but, um, that, um, you know, just finishing that race, it took me, I was about, you know, half an hour after the last. Uh, boat had finished. I was sort of still, you know, chipping away and, you know, capsizing and getting back up and going a bit further and capsizing and trying to beat my way up to the finish line. Um, at McRae, actually, which is my home club now where we live uh, here in McRae and, um, long, long time ago now, 30 odd years ago, but just finally being able to get to the finish line and, you know, capsizing a couple of times and finally getting it through and getting a cheer from the, the race committee and, you know, getting, getting back to the beach finally and, I was absolutely spent. I was, I was completely knackered that night, but finishing that race and just realizing that, you know, you'd battled through, you'd finished, you'd finished seventh out of all the big kids as well. Cause we were the juniors in amongst the big kids. And, um, you know, the street cred that you sort of got from some of the bigger kids, you know, being just a, a little tiny, tiny kid. I haven't really grown much since then, to be honest, but, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, you know, it was pretty cool. It was, you know, seeing so, so the big kids coming up and patting you on the back and, sort of saying, oh, well done, you know, your great job in finishing. It was sort of like, wow, that was pretty cool. And the next day um, we had, I think, two or three races and, you know, I just sort of did those the best I could and, you know, getting that seventh position was sort of enough, you know, for me to um, to win the win the, uh, the junior championship. And that was like, wow, if you, if you try hard and you stick at it and you don't give up, then crikey's, you know, you can get some good results. And after that it was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do from now on and that's sort of what I've done ever since. Do you tell your kids that story? <laughs> I think my mum and uh, my, my, my dad probably tell that story. You know, I, I don't sort of talk to them much about that, but mum and dad, I think, have told them the story and I think they were, you know, they've listened. And, um, yeah, they've, they've certainly, you know, taken it on board, particularly Lani, our eldest one. She she knows that, you know, you've just got to, sometimes you've got to 
do the hard yards and you get knocked down and you get up and you get knocked down again and you know you just got to keep battling away and I think in in life really there's there's plenty of you know plenty of times where you as as you know as well with your your sailing career you you know it doesn't come easy if it come if it came easy then everyone would be doing it and everyone would be successful so um I think you know doing the hard yards and being prepared to you know get knocked about a bit but um keep charging through then I think good things come well, you weren't just good at competitive sailing, Glenn. I mean, you're also pretty handy on a bike. Competitive sailing won in the end. Talk to me a little bit about that. It's a big lesson for a youngster, isn't it? I mean, that you can't really do everything to a high level. How hard was it to make that decision? And how close were you to a career in two wheels? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a, it's a really great question. It, it's, it, yeah, it was a really probably one of the toughest decisions of my life, I guess, um, you know, making that call as a sort of, you know, 14-year-old ultimately in the end where I had to sort of really put a line between the two sports. I tried to do both. Um, I raced BMX um, from when I was five years old through till I was about um, 10 or 11 years old and then I started racing motocross um, from 11 years old um, or 10, or 10 years old um, through till I was about 14 and um, I loved both sailing and, and motorbikes and, and, and basically it got to a point where I was, yeah, I, I had to pay. I was paying for it all myself and I was working before and after school, um, you know, to earn pocket money to, to do both sports. And I was sort of running myself ragged and, you know, my boat was pretty average and I needed to upgrade it to, to get better results. And, and the same thing with motorbiking in the end, I was, you know, having to, I couldn't replace my tires anywhere near as often as I really needed to, to, get to the level that I wanted to get to and um, it sort of got to the point where I was just doing both sports sort of averagely which was frustrating me and um, you know really had to make a call and remember sitting down with mum and dad and you know a few friends and and family and they're just like you know you're going really well in both but we we think you'd last longer if you (laughs) if you went sailing Um, we think you'd probably wrap yourself around a tree or uh, you know end up on your head at some stage or other on, on your bike and they didn't Forced the decision on me. It was completely my decision, and um, you know it was a it was a bloody tough decision. But um, ultimately, sort of got you know made the pathway to um, go sailing, which I you know it was a fifty fifty. And you know I love love my sailing and always have, and I still love my bikes and always have. It's just I've probably you know probably gone a little bit better in in sailing than I have on my bike. But I love my bike riding, and it gives me you know the same satisfaction now at, at forty three years old. Um, you know probably riding the best I ever have, um, ever, you know, um, now. And I think that's possibly um, experience and, and knowledge and probably the equipment too has obviously got better and maybe it masks some of your mistakes a bit better than the old bikes did. But, um, you know, it's it's one of those ones that I think both both sports have been a huge part of my life and I think you can take attributes um, and skills from, from both disciplines and actually feed them together and it's quite often I'll be using analogies of how the bikes feel or um, how riding feels versus how we're sailing and particularly the, um, you know, the balance and how things need to work together um, and how you have to really become one with your bike like you do on the boat, um, as you know very well. Um, yeah, so a lot of, lot of similarities, but ultimately, you know, went sailing and sort of glad I did because my fingers and my arms all still work. <laughs> That's good news. Um, Glenn, you left school at 16 to become an apprentice sailmaker. I mean, a life ahead of you as a professional sailor. It was pretty brave, I guess, exciting. Uh, 
And a common route to success amongst our guests on the podcast. I mean, was there a backup plan at all? Yeah, look, I I went to school and my sort of goal going through school was either to become a meteorologist, um, g'day clouds, uh, or a surveyor, actually, a land surveyor. And I, I sort of enjoyed being outdoors and, um, you know, always watching the weather and, you know, but surveying sort of, I was quite interested in, you know, measuring things and being out in the bush and, you know, having to sort of delve through different places, particularly in central Victoria, there was, you know, quite a lot of undulating ground and, you know, I quite, quite enjoyed that as well and that sort of outdoors activity. But, um, in the end, I, I, yeah, I was sort of about six weeks into starting year 11, uh, at school and, um, my dad actually was out at the local sale loft um, in Bendigo at uh, Greg Goodall's sale loft and basically was talking to Greg and who was a, a you know sort of uh, world A-class champion and, and was sailing tornado catamarans at the time and um, yeah basically was talking to Greg my dad sort of came home and said oh look Greg's after a, you know, an apprentice and he thinks you'd be you'd be you know pretty pretty good um, would you be interested and I that was, this was on a Wednesday I said to my uh, my mates on Friday afternoon uh, I might not be back in on Monday. Um, I've got a, a job offer and made the decision over the weekend and basically went in on Monday and picked up my books out of my locker and went straight to the sale loft and started sweeping the floor and making cups of tea and coffee for everyone else and learning about sale making. And um, that was pretty much it. It was literally done over a three or four day period and I completely, completely tacked, you know, from where I thought I was going. I, I had this opportunity and I got supported uh, with mum and dad, they, they, they really supported me and thought that would be a great opportunity because you're working with your hands, you're outdoor, you're, you know, using your maths and your, your science skills. And, um, yeah, it was, it, it was great. That's, that single decision probably has been, you know, the best decision of my, my whole career, um, to date, I think. And the support I had from, you know, friends and family. Um, at the time, some of my friends, uh, were, you know, pretty negative on, on leaving school and some of their parents were like, Oh, you've, you've ruined your life. And, you know, you, you should be getting an education. And, um, but I think the, the school of life, you know, for me over the next few years was, was so, you know, the, the learning curve was so steep and, um, having the opportunity to travel internationally, you know, uh, uh, two or three years after I started sail making was, was really just the, the, you know, just the, the key in the door to open you know, a huge amount of, um, you know, fun times and, and great regattas and a whole lot of learning that I never thought potentially possible. So, um, yeah, sail making it was for me and um, have been a sail maker ever since and, and proud of it. It's pretty impressive at such a young age to be able to make such big decisions. I think just listening to you, I think, you know, at 14 to, to make that life-changing decision, you know, bike or boat, and then at, at 16 to just know that this was the right thing, that it felt right? Yeah, look, I, I, you know, a lot of people ask me, you know, how, how, how did you make that? And, and, you know, I procrastinate way more now than I did back then. I, back then, sometimes it was just like, okay, this feels right and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with it. And, I, and you sort of almost made it happen once you'd, once you'd made the call and you, you took the bull by the horns. And, um, you know, I think you could say it was good luck or good management, both, both those decisions. But, um, at the end of the day, it was, it was just, you know, the life that you were living at the particular time. And it wasn't until, you know, years and years later that you sort of look back and you went, wow, that's, um, you know, here I am in Europe, you know, sleeping under my boat cover in Switzerland or Austria or Germany or Italy. 
um, you know, with not two cents to rub together, but you know, you're there with a, a, a really cool boat and you know, that you, that you, that you own yourself. And, um, you know, you're not sure how you're going to get to the next regatta. You'll beg, borrow, steal a trailer or get a ride with somebody, but you know, it didn't matter that you were sleeping under your boat cover because you're in Europe looking up at the mountains while you're, while you're lying on your boat. I mean, it was just epic. And I, those experiences and the friends and the people that you met, you know, you'd just be, it was, I was blown away and you just wanted more of it and you wanted to do better and, and better and better. And, um, yeah, I still to this day I have some epic friends that have, you know, been a huge part of that. And, you know, their kids are coming to visit us in Australia now and we're having their kids, you know, when they're first starting to travel, come across. And over the last few years, it's been a pretty cool cycle of, you know, they looked after me when I was sort of in need and, you know, now you can repay the favour. So, yeah, pretty cool. It's a good community, that's that's for sure. I mean, before we move on, Glenn, I must ask you, do you get back to Bendigo at all? I mean, I, I promised Aussie offshore legend Nick Maloney that I'd bring up the Glen Ashby <laughs> statue on Main Street there. What's all that about? Yeah, that's just Nick. Uh, Nick being Nick. So uh, yeah, there is no there is no statue, but Nick's a good bugger. He's a funny bloke too. I need to catch up with old Lindsay. There should be. I think we should start a campaign for a Bendigo statue of Glen Ashby. Glen, I've also heard a great story of how a bet with your boss led to your first world championship success. Talk to me about that. Yeah, look, um, you know, Greg Greg Goodall's been um, you know obviously a huge part of my early. Um, sailing career and sail making career and um, yeah I was basically uh, yeah just turned 18 years old and um, went was heading off to a regatta up in New South Wales with with Greg so Greg and I had the boats double decked on the on the trailer heading up to the regatta and I just sort of had an old prototype boat that was one of the you know early sort of heavy chopped up boats that the new shaped A class uh, was going to be um, for the future boats and a little bit overweight and a little bit, um, a little bit sort of wobbly, uh, you know, down the sides. But it was, um, you know, nonetheless, it was, a, it was a good boat. And um, so Greg basically said to me, "Well, you know, if you, if you know, you can do well here, you know, there's a, an opportunity that you know you could head across the world." So, um, you know, he sort of said, "You got to, you got to make sure you beat me." You know, it was a bit of a joke driving up, and I sort of took that as a shit. This is a good opportunity to, uh, you know, to possibly get myself a. Um, you know, a trip to Europe and potentially be able to, you know, sail a, a new boat, possibly, um, that we were developing, um, you know, in a world championships in, in Spain. So I, you know, suffice to say, I, I did my very best at that regatta and, um, you know, sailed, sailed a good event and, and, and beat Greg. And um, we drove back home and they, both uh, Greg and, and Jim Boyer, uh, who was building the boats in Bendigo, made, made good with their promise. And um, I saved up a, an airline ticket and uh, my nana, I think, actually uh, helped out with the majority of it from memory. And, um, yeah, off I went to Italy and uh, well, so actually flew into Holland and fitted out a few masts and then actually drove down through Italy and uh, down into, into Spain. And, um, yeah, spent the first few days patching up uh, a few little holes in the bottom of the boat because that was sort of a new construction method. Um, got those sorted out with um, uh, Scott Anderson, actually, and, and Murray Philpot. Um, who sort of, you know, put their arms around me and took me under their wings and, um, thought, who's this, you know, young bloke from Bendigo? I was absolutely as green as grass. I'd never been to Europe before. And so, yeah, got down there and, and basically didn't know anybody and, um, rigged up the boats and went out and, you know, went sailing, got to the first race of the regatta, which was quite windy. And I think I won the first race by about seven and a half minutes. So, 
um, yeah, it was a bit of an eye opener, and it was I sort of got around the first mark and in fourth, and passed a few boats down the first reach, and then just didn't never look back. Just just kept kept completely sending it the whole way around the racetrack, and and yeah, so that was sort of the regatta, and one I think in the end by a point. Um, yeah, and won my first worlds just just having just turned nineteen, so out of eighty seven um, competitors. So yeah, it was cool. It was a big uh, big shock, and I don't think anybody, including myself. <laughs> Was um you know even thought you you were going to get anywhere near it, but um one of those ones where you yeah you sort of surprise yourself and surprise other people and you know I was pretty uh I was actually probably quite a lot I was about ten ten or fifteen kilos heavier then than I am now <laughs> funnily, funnily enough um I was about eighty five kilos um for for that event as a sort of a nineteen year old spent a lot of time at the gym lifting heavy things back then and um. Yeah, it was a fairly windy regatta, so um, you know I managed to sort of keep up with the bigger guys, and um, yeah, one of those ones that I'll, I'll absolutely never, never forget. I had a French guy. I remember I heard this noise on the window in the morning. He was, heard this bang, bang, bang on the window, and he was throwing stones from down on the street up to where I was staying in my hotel to wake me up because I'd been out a little bit too late. Um, you know, uh, checking out the local establishments and uh, meeting some new people. And, um, got down to the boat park and the whole fleet had left. I was the, my boat was the only one left on the beach with a cover on. So, um, I managed to just make it out to the start line, um, and, and start. I think it might have been a general recall actually. And, um, I think I managed to sneak through and, uh, start. And, um, yeah, if I hadn't have made that race, I would have lost the regatta. So, um, yeah, sometimes you need a bit of luck, but, um, yeah, it was good fun. Oh my God. That's the stuff of nightmares. You wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> You do, you do, and and sometimes you still wake up going, well, oh, they've all gone, they've left without me, and it probably probably wasn't the first time, and probably certainly wasn't the last over the next few years where you'd be the last one in the boat park arriving. That's for sure, but um, it all works out. It all works out in the end. It was pretty difficult, I guess. You know, coming from Bendigo, having a, an aspiration of going to the Olympics in sailing, that Olympics probably has given me the drive to push even harder. A 90 foot by 90 foot trimaran is a pretty different boat than a tornado. I mean, that victory, Glenn, really opened the door, didn't it? I mean, you became Mr. ACAT after that, winning a remarkable 10 ACAT worlds. I mean, talk to anyone who sailed with you and they talk about your, your natural talent, your abundance of feel, particularly at pace. When did you know that you had that? And describe that feeling for our listeners. What's it like to know how to make a fast boat go even faster? I think being comfortable, being uncomfortable um, is probably a way of describing, um, you know, how to go faster and how to push things further. And certainly in, you know, boats like the ACAT, the Tornado, multi-hulls in general or, or high-performance dinghies, skiffs, moths, um, types of boats I guess we're, we're seeing now in the America's Cup. It's something that you don't get comfortable, you know, overnight. It takes, it takes time. But I think pushing yourself up to the edge of where you feel in control, stepping back, pushing yourself up a little bit further, stepping back, recognizing the signs just like you do on a bike or in a car where you have to use a hundred to 110 percent of your sailing ability or your riding ability um, to stay in control and then stepping back to sort of 80 percent and being comfortable at pushing 80 to 90 percent stepping back to 80 percent 
when you get into situations where you need 100% of your talent, you've seen the movie before. You've done that in training. You know where the edge is. You know when to push and you know that's where you're on the ragged edge. And I think doing that and making mistakes, breaking some gear, crashing and burning, that's all part of it in training. But when you get to a, a, the pointy end of a high-performance regatta, knowing when you can step up to where you might make the passing opportunity and have to use 100% of your ability and being confident that you're not going to step over to 110 and make a mistake, that I think is probably something that um, I think bike riding probably taught me as a young kid is to learn where the edge is and keep pushing that and keep putting yourself in an uncomfortable position and being comfortable with being a little bit uncomfortable and the more you do that, you know, um, the more comfortable you get being in that situation. I think that's certainly something with particularly the, you know, the sort of the high performance nature of, I guess, most of the boats that I've sailed. Um, you know, you can be sitting there extremely comfortable um, while everyone else around you is absolutely shitting their pants. And that's, um, you know, that's okay. That's all right. And I think then, you know, working together and conveying that confidence of, hey, guys, we're all, we're under control. We've got, we've got this. This is just fine. As a group, then you can take the next step forward and then everybody's comfortable and then you take the next step and the next step. And I think that's something that's been, you know, really cool to be part of, um, not only with, with Darren and, and doing the Olympic campaigns and sailing those sort of boats over the years and, and by yourself on the ACAT and the MOF and that sort of thing, but, but in a wider team environment where you've got, you know, millions of dollars worth of worth of assets that you're testing and developing and pushing, knowing where the edge is and being comfortable with that, I think breeds great confidence with your design team and your engineering team and, and your fellow teammates. And I think that's something that's been um, a really fantastic part of um, the last 10 or 12 years of being involved with the America's Cup. Are you braver than everyone else? Are you a brave person? <laughs> <laughs> Um, possibly, possibly. Um, I've had so many crashes and falling off things, you know, over the years that you probably do have to be a bit brave and sometimes it hurts, you know, sometimes you, you get up and you're like, wow, that was a, that was a good one. And certainly through BMX and motocross, you know, you, you have to be brave. If you want to be, if you want to be, if you want to win, um, on those environments, you have to be brave. And I think that's, that side of my life, I think from being really young, I think probably taught a bit of having to be brave and you, you know, you weren't a big guy. Um, you had to be brave. You had to, you had to push hard when other people were sort of backing off. You had to push hard to make the pass and, and to win races when you probably shouldn't have. And I think that's something that's, um, yeah, that's probably just been ingrained since I was a little kid. But, um, yeah, I think I'm probably getting less brave now, um, that I'm getting older with uh, other, other things, but. At the same time, I think your experience and your calculated risk that you take these days, um, I think is, is way more managed accurately these days after having some experience than possibly what it was when you're a 19 year old and you just sent it and maybe your skill set was a little bit better and you could, you managed to stay upright. <laughs> I think there's more to it though than just, you know, pushing when it's extreme. Everybody talks about your, I guess your feel for what's going on when others don't you you know what's going on just describe that the, the finesse of it yeah i think i think in this sort of day and age it's it's almost a it's almost too easy for for kids particularly i think and adults as well but it's too easy to just be given good equipment and be given a new mast and be given a new sail and a new set of foils 
and you know go out and you know you you're just tacking and jibing and that's how you buy your speed i think i think that feel and that finesse i think probably for me came from just fiddling around with my own stuff and and just you know recutting sails and reshaping battens and um reshaping your foil um repainting your boat wet sanding things and um i think those lessons i think are, are really really important to to, to, to a lot of sports, particularly, you know, the, the sport of sailing. And I think that's almost a bit of a dying breed of, of child, if you like, or, or kid that's sort of coming through the ranks. And, you know, you often get asked questions, you know, from, from phenomenally talented sailors, um, you know, boys and girls that, you know, oh, how, how do you make the boat go faster and how does it feel like this? And it's, it's hard to explain. You can't teach that feeling. It has to be sort of learnt. You know, you can teach technique and you can teach, um, you know, how to hike well and how to steer well. But the feeling is um, is actually um, basically something that I think you have to you have to want and and you have to want to learn and you have to be prepared to make some mistakes and and actually take some step, steps backwards or sideways to un- understand. How to take a step forward, and I think that's um, that's a, that's a really important one to to you know learn about how to get the best out of your gear. You sailed with fellow Aussie Darren Bunduk in the Formula Eighteen series, team riders for Hobie Cat, and in two thousand and five, although he was slightly nervous that you weren't quite the perfect build, he asked you to campaign for Beijing with him. What did you make of the Olympic scene, and did you then think this was it? You'd made it as a pro. <laughs> um yeah look the olympic dream for me ha- had been long long running and you know ever since i was a sort of seven or eight year old you know you'd watch the olympics and you just would sort of dream of one day you know being able to go and and compete at an olympic games and you know it was pretty pretty difficult i guess you know coming from bendigo having a, an aspiration of going to the olympics in sailing but I think the, the opportunities that sort of slowly presented themselves over the years, you know, it was, it was 16 or 18 years of, of trying to get to the Olympics really for me before I actually made it to the Olympics with Darren. And, um, yeah, it was, it was definitely not an easy, easy road. I would hate to think, you know, how much money of my own uh, <laughs> that I put into, um, trying to get there and, and, you know, had a lot of, you know, great, Great support over the years, um, you know, to, with, uh, you know, people helping and, and trying to point you in the right direction. But, um, yeah, it was, it was not an easy path. But once we, I got that opportunity to, to, to sail with, with Darren, um, you know, obviously my, my physique is not the, the perfect size for, for, for most boats, <laughs> maybe for an AC 75. I don't know at, uh, at about this height, good for aerodynamics. Um, I, I think. You know, the tornado probably being, you know, quite wide, um, you know, me being a little bit shorter, probably compared to something like a laser, for example, or a sailboard. Um, you know, when you look at where the lured hull is versus where my head was, even though it was a couple of inches shorter than most people, globally, it wasn't a huge, a huge riding moment difference. And, um, you know, being able to have the opportunity to make your own sails and, and, and test and, and test battens and all your rigging and foils, that sort of thing. You know, that was a really big part of, I think, um, you know, our, our package and certainly sailing with Darren and having, you know, Mike Fletcher involved, uh, was fantastic. You know, the, the, the journey 
that we we went on together was was pretty cool and to to use our own sails and um and gear was was pretty cool to be turning up at the olympic games um you know with sails that you'd 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 cut and stuck and sewn together by yourself um you know it was pretty cool you know pulling them out of the bag and you know sticking your sticking your country's logo on your own sails that you've built yourself pretty cool pretty cool feeling and um you know i think those certainly those memories with darren um you know at the olympics just just going to the opening ceremony for me was um it was super special and i'll remember that forever and um obviously winning a, a medal was was a bonus and it would have been great if we could have gone one better but you know time heals and i think whether we won a, a gold medal or a silver medal i don't think it really would have changed the pathway for, for either darren or myself i think you know, it's um, you know, we'd established ourselves over the years, and um, you know, I think the opportunities that that presented were presented to both of us after that, you know, were, were have been wonderful and um, a, a great a great memory, a great journey, and um, yeah, something I, I wish I could have got another crack at in uh, in London, but unfortunately, as we know, no no multi hull in two thousand and twelve, so um, that rug got pulled out from underneath us. But um, I'm really stoked that there's. Uh, you know, a catamaran in the Olympic Games and, and the NACRA is obviously a, um, you know, a, a fantastic boat foiling, um, you know, moving the sport in, into a future direction. So that, that's great. Half the battle with an Olympic campaign is logistical. And Bundy tells me you were the most unorganised guy, hopeless with planning and logistics until you met your wife, Mel, that he told you to marry. Um you know, she really, didn't she, took on the project of organising Glenn Ashby. Is that fair? Is he being a bit mean there? No, he, he's not at all. And, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of, I guess I'm the ideas man, you know, with a lot of, a lot of projects and a lot of campaigns. But, um, you know, organisation sometimes probably hasn't been my, my strong point over the years. I'm getting better slowly. Um, but no, Darren and I work, you know, really well together. And Mel, you know, she's been, She's been an equal part of, you know, my team, Darren's team, um, like Carolyn has, um, for a long time as well with Darren. It's, it's where you need somebody to balance you. Um, you know, I think I balanced Darren. He balanced me really well. Um, we both had our strengths and weaknesses in different areas. And I think Darren's 100% right. He was really good at that side of it. And, you know, I took on other aspects, um, you know, and, and worked hard on, on, on different aspects of our campaign. And I think the, um, you know, that, that balance, if you like, and certainly having Mal involved, you know, with, um, cause we were, you know, we had our, not just the Olympic campaign, but we had our boat building business and also sail making company, you know, running at the same time. So I would have loved to have come back after some regattas and had a couple of weeks off and regroup. But basically I was, you know, I'd, I'd sleep on the plane coming back to Australia and then I'd be straight into the loft, you know, working 16, 18 hours a day to build sails for my customers and pay some bills. And then we'd be back into the next, you know, extreme 40 event you know sailing against you and and you know with nick and uh you know off to the next hobie event or off to the next acat event or off to the next tornado event so it was busy times and you know mel for me has been you know an absolute rock and i, I would not be anywhere near um where i am now without her and without her support so i feel pretty lucky and darren was right you know so so i married it <laughs> <laughs> a valuable part of the team. I mean, you've you've brushed over your Olympic journey in, in a couple of sentences, but I want to go back and just look at it a little bit more in depth. I mean, you arrived in Qingdao favourites, reigning world champions. What kind of team were you and Darren? I mean, how confident were you both? Did you expect to win? 
Um, yeah, I think we did expect to win, and or we knew we were you know, going to be certainly at the pointy end of the of the regatta if if we put together you know a, a, just a stock standard sort of performance. You know, we knew that we were going to be oh, pretty pretty well in the in the conditions that we trained for three and a half years in um, light air, Chindao, all the test events, all the pre regattas that light air, and you know I got down from uh, eighty one. Or nearly 82 kilos, I think it was in February down in at the World Championships to qualify in New Zealand at Takapuna. I got from about 81, 82 kilos down to 69 kilos in, in July, um, to be fast in, in, in Chindao. And Darren also, you know, dropped a lot of weight as well. And we were the lightest team by five or six kilos, I think, um, in Chindao specifically. To go well and to go fast and our rig setup, all our training we'd done was we knew that the lighter we could get, um, and the more work we did on our rig, the better we would go. And in all the testing and all the training, we were quick. And, uh, yeah, it was one of those regattas that, you know, instead of being, you know, three to seven knots was, you know, seven to 20 knots and should have gone to the pub and eaten pies for, for six months beforehand and stayed at 82 or 83 kilos because you know, we really, we really didn't have a, a an edge at all. You know, being that light when it was windy, and we knew that. And and unfortunately, that regatta for us was, you know, a medium air, you know, a medium air event, which you want to be at your at your normal weight at a, at about a hundred and you know hundred and sort of fifty kilos. And we were we were you know well under, you know, we were well down towards one hundred and thirty kilos. Um, so, yeah, that was um, you know, that's sailing. That's the way it panned out, and um, you know, to come away with with a medal and absolutely hats off to Fernando and Anton and 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 Santi as well and and Carlos. Like, you know, those they they sailed a, a fantastic regatta, and I think um, you know, Darren and I probably didn't have our best regatta and had a couple of little breakages and things which are unforeseen, and that's life. You know, you you move on and play on and move on to bigger and better things, so to speak, or different things, and um, you know that. But that those memories were 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 awesome and. You know, to have a, a silver medal, you know, sitting in the uh, in in the shelf is there's nothing to be sneezed at. So any any medal's better than no medal, they say. I've heard you talk before about how it still feels like unfinished business, that it still hurts. Why is that? Yeah, look, I, th- I think you know, you after being sort of ranked number one for the eighteen months, you know, beforehand going into the Olympic Games, and you know, having won. A lot of events leading up to it and and that you know i guess yeah i mean everyone wants to win you know at, at all the time particularly at the olympics as as you know and you've had you know the opportunity of having some great success and you know that feeling of i guess climbing the mountain and actually being able to you know get to the very top is is something that um you know we all we all love and we all want and you get that you get that you have that drug and you want it again and you 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 really push harder and harder for success and i think when you when you when you don't quite make it 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 hurts it hurts it hurts bad and i think that olympics probably has given me the drive to push even harder you know with um with the america's cup side of things and into other events certainly as you move forward with you know other sailing and 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 the acad and all that sort of thing you you know you don't want to be second you want to be first and you don't want to you know you don't want to finish it anywhere but first and i think that um that drive is is something that is intensely draining it it takes a huge amount of um you know mental and physical 
uh, tax. You know, you pay a big tax for that. And, and I think there comes a point where, you know, your batteries get pretty drained and, and you need to recharge. And if you don't recharge, then you won't be able to taste success again. So I think recharging and managing that, that well, like you have to do with a lot of batteries these days, um, you know, you don't want to have to replace your batteries because, because you can't, you're done when you have to do that. Right, Glenn, let's talk cup. In the multi-hull scene, you were making a stir. And in preparation of the crazy Dida gift match in 2010 between Oracle and Alingi, Oracle hired you to teach them what to do on more than one hull. How did that even happen? I mean, it's quite a leap, isn't it, from the tornado to a 90-foot trimaran? Yeah, yep, it's, it certainly is. Um, yeah, look, I, I had a... Um, yeah, sort of, I guess, you know, had an opportunity to go, uh, and do, uh, a week of coaching with, uh, with BMW Oracle and, um, Jimmy, uh, Spithill and Russell Coots sort of made contact and, um, yeah, asked if I'd be able to sort of come and do some coaching with those guys on an extreme 40, um, for, for a week. And I, I didn't know that there was, you know, they were sort of going through uh, other guys and looking at that as, as well. But, um, after that week, I, you know, I flew from, you know, went from Melbourne across to, I think it was Valencia and, and then, um, it might have even been in San Diego. I can't remember from memory, but, um, we did our week and I flew, um, flew back home and then, you know, sort of, uh, a few days or a week or so went by. And, um, you know, I think, um, Jimmy and Russell both sort of made contact and said, you know, would I be interested in sort of being involved in the in the trimaran program and coming over and spending a bit more time sailing and um and and working with the guys and it was only really not that long after the olympics that um you know sort of early 2009 that that was all sort of happening and um yeah i thought why not i'll I'll go over and and have a look and you know it was pretty daunting for me like a, a, a 90 foot by 90 foot you know trimaran is a pretty different boat than a tornado and an extreme 40 but um you know i'd seen a lot of almost 60s and um you know other big sort of trimaran sailing and i thought oh, i can't be can't be that sort of big and that scary and and then i rocked up over there and got to, taken out there for the first day on the chase boat and i just saw this sort of thing on the horizon i thought oh yeah that's a that's a pretty you know pretty pretty big boat and we just got closer and closer and i remember talking to reedy going oh that's uh that's a big bus and i remember turning up and there was just sails all over the deck there was rigging absolutely everywhere um, three four days. It was just furled sails. It was just a complete horror show. And I thought, what the hell have I got myself into here? And um, we basically, yeah, sort of stopped. And I had a bit of a look, and boat got towed in and and caught up with the guys. And I just was like, wow, this is going to be a this is going to be an interesting uh, interesting challenge. And that that it was, you know, it was a it was a absolutely fantastic challenge. And I think that that journey with um, with Jimmy and uh, and the boys with the trimaran uh, was something that I don't think any of us will ever forget. It was it was such an epic epic journey with that thing and the loads, the size. Um, you know, really the only thing left on that boat was the uh, you know a bit of the centre hull on the beams. Pretty much everything else on the boat was changed from when I first rocked up, which was sort of well into the program, to when the thing actually sailed against Alingi in in Valencia in February two thousand and ten and um yeah what a what an amazing experience and you know that was uh people think sort of a, that the you know the AC75s are big and the AC50s are big they they they're toys compared to what this thing was it was uh it was pretty scary but but super cool at the same time and fun what was your role 
my, my role was basically to yeah to sort of coach and and sail on board and and I guess work um, you know with uh, the designers and the engineers to sort of give my um, opinion on on I guess how to make the boat go faster and you know, I was coming from a completely outside point of view I'd never been involved with the cut before I didn't know anybody so I didn't sort of have any um, you know I wasn't sort of scared of I guess speaking up and 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 sort of having my my say and my, putting my two cents worth in whether it be right or wrong um, you know I think just stimulating discussion you know with the designers and the engineers and just asking heaps of questions like I always do um, and just asking them why why is it like this why is it like that could we do this what do you think about that do you think it's you know this that or the other and I think that's the the thought stimulation that 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 probably provided just from coming from the outside parachuting into that program um, and you know bringing some confidence in you know pushing the boat hard and and taking steps you know big steps forward in performance like you're not talking tenths of knots you're talking knots of boat speed increases in performance over that that sort of um, year and a half two year period it was um, pretty amazing and and really fun to be making big steps forward in performance with you know really big gear and I know it was a huge undertaking you know boat building wise engineering wise mechanical wise um, you know the the cylinders that held the 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 rigging up you know were, were, were bigger than your body you know you were there was just unbelievable the loads but when everything was balanced up and and the boat was sailing well um, you know it was an absolute picture it, it looked it looked beautiful it looked in balance and it just took quite a while to get it there and fortunately um, the boat hung together um, when it was actually race time because previously to actually racing the boat as as a lot of people know that couldn't have ever got around the racetrack we couldn't get around the racetrack so the fact that it did get around the racetrack was unbelievable and you know sometimes you need a bit of luck but that actually all came together at the right time and that's what you need sometimes to win big regattas. I mean there was some real brave design decisions in that campaign it must have been it must have been crazy. I mean, talk talk to us about that making making such big decisions. Yeah, it was um, it was it was it was incredible. I mean, for for me, one of the biggest things that I really struggled with was just how much things cost and the money that was being spent. Um, you know, building stuff and changing things, and how much the sales costed, and you know, how much the just everything, how much everything was worth. It was just you know, coming from Bendigo as a kid, where you you were working for $2.50 an hour to be then going and just making decisions in a boardroom with a group of guys that were millions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars on different componentry was like, whoa. But once you got in your head that, you know, forget about that side of it, you've just got to make the boat go fast, um, you then basically could put yourself in a mindset that you just had to say, well, this needs to happen. These changes need to happen to make the steps forward to have the chance of actually beating your opposition. And once I guess I sort of got into into that zone, I guess of you know just the sheer enormity of it all. Once you could sort of deal with that, then it basically became like a little boat. You just kept tweaking, and you know you just often need five or six people to do the recut on the sail rather than just getting your quick unpick out and just actually unpicking a, a small dinghy sail. And that was um, you know an amazing learning experience, I think, for 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 everybody worldwide, particularly within the teams, both teams, I think Alingi as well would argue that um, you know, that the rate of learning and the steepness of the learning curve was was super exciting. I mean, your alarm would go off at 4.30 in the morning um, and you'd just be jumping straight out of the bed because you couldn't wait to get in there and, and see what's 
been happening overnight and, and get into the next day. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty special to be involved in projects like that where you, um, you know, there's long days and it, yes, it's hard on the family and it's hard on everybody. But, um, th at that particular stage of my sailing career, it was just all new and exciting and boats that were of that size and that speed and, um, you know, that engineering at the time was, was just mind blowing. And to be part of that and I think, you know, um, to, to sort of help push that along and, and, and instill a little bit of confidence in the guys, not only sailing the boat, but, you know, doing the changes. I think it was, um, yeah, it was really cool to be part of. And I, I think something that, you know, is definitely a, a fantastic memory. I'll never forget being in Valencia and they arrived with this giant wing. <laughs> Nobody knew how even they were going to launch the thing. I mean, what did you make of that when you were sitting around that table at Oracle and they're like, I know, we're going to build a wing. <laughs> Yeah, look, you know, I remember talking to Mike Drummond, um, you know, uh, quite a bit about it and, and it was just like, wow, it's just, it's when you actually worked out sort of the enormity of it, like it was, it was big gear, big, big gear. And it was, um, you know, and it's, and it's extremely powerful. Um, you know, the AC 72 wings were extremely big and powerful, but they were, again, they were, they were just toys compared to what that wing was on, on USA 17. It was, it was a big piece of kit and, and, you know, being able to walk down the inside of the spa and, and hardly have to, well, you know, I remember Dirk Derrida, he had to bend over a bit, but I could almost walk down fully, <laughs> fully straightened up, tuning the wing, um, inside, you know, it was, it was just an absolute monster of a thing. But, you know, again, you, you know, there's always a way to deal with it. And, you know, you put some clever people together in a room and, you know, you work out how to do things and, um, you know, you work out how to put it up, you work out how to put it down and put it away and, and tune it. And, um, you know, really it was, it was a, a massive engineering pioneering feat that, that was, was undertaken. And I think that wing absolutely was, um, you know, one of the keys to the success of, of that boat and, 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 and of that era. And you look at what's sort of sailing around these days and, you know, Look at the trickle down. It's um, it's uh, it's pretty cool to see it. You know, still alive and well. <laughs> what did you learn from your time with Oracle? Yeah, look, I, so many, so many things. I think you know, life, life lessons of um, you know, that uh, absolutely sort of shaped the pathway going forward. I think um, the 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 sailing side was was extremely valuable. The um, having access to uh, talk to, you know, extremely clever, um, designers and engineers for me was something that was, was, you know, unbelievable. Like the, to these super clever guys that, um, you know, had devoted their whole lives to their field and, and being able to sit down and talk with them. That for me was like being a kid in a candy store. You could go and ask the, the silliest questions, you know, that were, you thought were silly and you'd sit down and you'd come away having learnt a whole lot of stuff and, you know, those guys would ask you, how do you, how does it feel and what does it do this? And you'd sort of start talking and I don't know how many coffees I would have had during that campaign, you know, standing around the coffee machine learning and talking. And, and I think those discussions in actual fact are, are often the most important discussions you have in, in a program. It's the, it's the ones that aren't in the meeting rooms that are outside that, um, you know, where you're in the, in the boat shed or you, you know, you're, you're on the water or in the chase boat. They're, they're often the most critical ones where you learn the most and it can actually dictate the whole program as it goes forward. So, um, yeah, learn, learn a huge amount. And I think, um, you know, certainly 
my involvement with Team New Zealand in the subsequent years, um, you know, were, were very much shaped by those early days um, at Oracle and what I learnt there for sure. One of the most modest men in our sports. I hope you're enjoying my chat with the very talented Glenn Ashby. In part two, we hear all about his time with Emirates Team New Zealand, the secret behind the foiling AC72, that loss in San Francisco, the win in Bermuda and the defence in Auckland. It's a great listen. I have to say a massive thank you to Glenn for his time in recording this podcast. It's not ideal doing these remotely. It can be tricky and Glenn's patience was very much appreciated. A big thank you too to Team New Zealand's Hamish Hooper Thanks, Hoops. Your help is always appreciated. And also a big thanks to our good friends at Crank Audio in Cardiff. Steve at Crank, always there when we need a hand sorting any audio problems. Thanks, Steve. If you're enjoying what you're hearing and would like to support the pod, then please do head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash sailing podcast. We work hard to bring you a real quality listen and it's lovely to have your support. As always, to the talented Tim at Vertigo Films, a giant thank you for your time. He'd way rather be out windsurfing, but luckily for all of us, he also loves putting this together. So to Tim, a big thank you. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. Have fun on the water and sail safe, everyone. This is Castle One. This is Castle One standing by. Out. Oh.